So turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We're going to pick up at verse 20. And uh, as we pick up at verse 20, the plan is to make it down to verse 35. And the title is, The Character and Status of Christ's Disciples. The Character and Status of Christ's Disciples. Very, very different than what the scribes and the Pharisees had been teaching the people of that day. And Jesus um, is going to take a lot of what they have to say and he's going to just turn it completely upside down and say, that is not what was meant. You've heard it said, but that's not right. Here's actually uh, what you should know and what you should understand. Um, so we're going to look at this. Now here's the interesting thing. This sermon, if you just just put a marker over in, in Matthew chapter 5. Just turn over there real quick. And, and um, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Now some would say that this is the same sermon in the same location. Or some would say it's relatively the same sermon in a different location. And for those that would say that, they would say that Matthew 5 through 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount, whereas Luke chapter 6 is known as the Sermon on the Plain. And if you back up a few verses, you can, you can see um, where that comes from there in chapter 6. You just see that, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples. Whereas Matthew chapter 5, if you take look at the context, you see that he is in a different geographical location. Some would say, well, listen, there are plains in the mountains too. Okay, so, but I'm just trying to alert you that if you read about the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, what is it? Well, there's the difference. Is it in the Mount? Matthew 5 through 7, is it uh, the level ground that he's on here in chapter 6? Is it the same place? Not, not really a big deal, but it is an interesting thing to consider. As we go through this, if you're familiar with Matthew 5 through 7, you will immediately be struck with the similarity um, that exists in these chapters. Even right off the bat, you'll be struck with the similarity of it. And I think that a lot of these are just they have the same exact teaching that he gave, and they're just restated here. Um, it's not unlikely that Jesus taught the same sermon more than once. So it's no, it was like, oh, well, this is, says he's in the mountain. This is it. He's in the plain. He's in love. Yeah, listen, I've taught a sermon in Lynchburg, Virginia, and in Nepal and Israel in Russia, and they probably are all pretty similar. No contradiction, just at a different time in a different location, teaching the same truth. So it's, it's no problem for us to think that Jesus would have taught the same thing as he traveled around. Clearly, he would have done that. As we move into verse 20, we come into the section where Jesus is going to talk about the blessedness of following him. So verse 20, um, we'll pick up reading and we'll read a few verses. We'll read down to verse 23. It says, Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did so, did to the prophets. So let's start there at, at verse 20. 
And I guess a, 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 a remark we'll make right off the bat is that Jesus is not giving a list of things to do in order to enter the kingdom of God. So he's not saying you've got to go do these things if you really want to be saved. That, that's not what's happening. He's talking to his disciples, and he is talking about what the character is going to be of his disciples. He's talking about what their status is going to be. Um, you'll see as we go through this list that hardship is associated with following Jesus. You're going to be reviled. They're not going to like you. They're going to use your name in an evil way. They're, you're going to hunger. You're going to weep. You're going to be poor. And so as you look at this, it, it sounds very interesting that Jesus would use the word blessed at the beginning and rejoice and leap for joy to try and describe how we should respond. Because he says, this is what it's going to be like, but this is how you should respond. Blessed are you. You're going to have a deep-seated sense of fortune. Actually, uh, the Greek word is makarios. It means to be especially favored, blessed, fortunate, happy, privileged. It's kind of, so, I mean, if you just take the word privileged and you put it in there for blessed, what do you have? Privileged are you poor. Privileged are you when you hunger now. And so he, 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 this kind of hits the person's ear like, what? Why is that, you know, uh, the way to it? I think Martin Lloyd-Jones says of uh, this word blessed, we should read, oh, how happy are you? It speaks of a, this, this favored state, and Jesus is the one who stated it. This is something that's wonderful. A good question to ask here is, are these Beatitudes that we're reading here in this Sermon on the Plain, or at least in Luke chapter 6, the same as the Beatitudes that we read in Matthew chapter 5? Again, you might want to flip over there, chapter 5, look at verse 3, and you'll notice some differences between the two. Um, the first thing you're going to notice between these two uh, sets of Beatitudes is that Matthew will include a qualifying element that really takes the, the principle that's trying to be communicated into a spiritual sense, into a, a kind of a, a, a spiritual state. So he'll say something like this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Luke just records Jesus as saying, blessed are you poor. So with the adding of the, the, you know, that prepositional phrase, you know, in the spirit, blessed are uh, you who are poor in spirit, it really is using a physical state as a metaphor of a spiritual state. So you're poor, but not just like without money, you're poor in spirit. Again, Matthew will say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, physical, for righteousness, he says, for they shall be filled. So again, you got this physical state of hunger that Luke also refers to, but then we have for righteousness, which adds that spiritual side to it. So that, that's one of the first things that we notice that's different, not in every one of these Beatitudes. The other thing that we, we note is that Matthew has more of them than Luke does. So just some things for us to note. And I, I do think that Jesus taught both. Um, I, you know, are, is he teaching the same exact thing? You know, in a lot of places on the sermon, it is just verbatim. 
But I think in these opening Beatitudes here, he's, he is talking about what is it like to be a follower of the Lord. And how he describes it is, wow, there's going to be, there's a blessedness for following the Lord in verse 20, but there's also going to be physical hardships to following the Lord. It's going to be hard. There's, there's going to be hunger. <laughs> there's going to be um, poverty. There's going to be uh, a place to shed tears. You're going to go through difficult times. So there's physical hardships are associated with following the Lord. So I would say that Luke here in the Beatitudes, it's not that he just assumed we would understand those prepositional phrases that are included in Matthew. I think he's, he's got a slightly different way, uh, different sermon that Jesus preached, similar kind of sounding words, but he's saying, listen to your disciples, I know, I know you're poor. I know that you're hungry. I know that you're going through these things. I know that you're brokenhearted. And they did. In, in uh, Luke 5.28, we read that they gave up everything to follow Jesus. They left their nets. They left the, the tax collecting booth. right? They left everything they had to follow Jesus. They left it behind. They didn't stop at ATMs and just kind of draw out money as they went. They left their resources behind. And so as they followed him, they, they were stepping into an impoverished way of living life. Um, and then this idea about, you know, blessed are those who, who weep. Um, Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, that he came to heal the brokenhearted. There would have been, Jesus is describing that following me and my disciples is not necessarily an easy thing to do. It's a blessed thing to do. It's a fortunate, it's a privileged place to be and to follow Jesus. But the reality is, there's hard things that are associated with following the Lord. There can be poverty, there can be hungry, there can be hunger, there can be tears that are directly related to your discipleship. In Luke chapter 9, verses 24 through 25, Jesus is going to say, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? So there is a losing that, that's, that's real. I mean, it, it's a real thing. Now, here we are in you know, 2020 living in America where being and following Jesus is not to say that nobody's ever persecuted or nobody ever goes through um, poverty for that or loses a job because of it. Certainly those things can happen, but that is not a, you know, a state program. That is not what's happening around you. We can find places like that in the world. We can find places where people are targeted for their faith. So, I mean, we have it relatively easy. And here's the danger is that we can, we can say, yeah, I know that following Jesus can be hard and I may need to lay down my life, but that doesn't happen anymore. And we begin to think that following the Lord is, is only this, oh, how happy, fortunate side of things. And we begin to measure that, not because we're part of the kingdom, not because one day we're going to eat in the, the, this glorious kingdom, one day we're going to eat, right? And we're going to sit down at the, at the table with the Lord. And there, there's going to no, be no lack. There's going to be no need. 
One day, we're not going to be weeping. We're not going to be crying. Those tears are going to be wiped away. And there's going to be this full joy. And we'll be laughing and we'll be having a great time in the kingdom of God. That's all to come. But the, the danger is that we begin to look for the fullness of our bellies and the happiness of, the, of this present hour. And if that begins to taper off because of some hardship or difficulty or health report or relationship breakdown or some kind of conflict, we begin to think that the kingdom is failing us. It's not failing us. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? I mean, these, these are strange words to hear. You're so fortunate to be poor. And oh, you're so happy to cry. And it's a great thing. You're a privileged, in a privileged state that you are hungry. Now, is it because of just a hardship? No, because yours is the kingdom. Because you shall be filled. Because you will laugh. Do, do you see this? But this is a concern that I, that I have. And I think that we need to see is that in our hour, in our day, in our generation, and maybe we could even add generations of living here, is that we think that, you know, well, being a Christian is going to take a great life and it's just going to make it greater. We've got a great life in America, so if I become a Christian, it's going to take a great life and it's just going to make it greater. Well, in what sense are you talking about that? Are you meaning that you're going to be a part of the kingdom and that one day all of your physical needs will be met and then all of your emotional needs are going to be met one day? Then yes, you're right. If it is that in this hour I should see a, I should have a, well, I became a Christian last week, so therefore my joy level and my, you know, you know, in, increase in finances and, and um, all ought to be going up. It all ought to be on the rise. Where's my return? And if you're measuring it in that physical sense, beware. The enemy's got you right where he wants you. Because now you're going to begin to say, well, I tried it. You know, I tried that Christianity thing. And man, I tell you what, I gave my life to Jesus and all of a sudden I lost my job and there's all kinds of difficulty around me. People stopped liking me. It's like I was losing my life. Oh, you mean like what Jesus said? If you want to follow me, you're going to lose your life? That, he wasn't speaking metaphorically. He was speaking literally. You're going to lose your life. And the people of that first generation who heard these words didn't think metaphorically, did they? They thought literally. And they did lose their lives. Those disciples, those original apostles, Jesus himself experienced this. So, I mean, there is a tremendous payoff. There's a tremendous blessing that we have. Oh, how happy are we to be those that would say, I'm going to follow you, and, well, okay, now all of a sudden I've, I've lost everything I have because I'm a Christian. It's all right. You got the kingdom. You may have gave up a few bucks here and now, but you're part of the kingdom. Well, you know, I don't have all my needs being met like I, I used to. Don't worry. One day in the kingdom, you're going to sit down, and the Lord is going to prepare the table for you, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, you know, just like it seems like there's all kinds of hardship and difficulty, and I've cried more since becoming a Christian than ever before. Hey, but you're going to a blessed place, and you're going to laugh. You're going to have joy in the kingdom. And so be leery, be wary of anybody that wants to sell, you know, Christianity as a, you know, a, uh, a self-improvement program. Just to kind of raise, you know, everything. You got a good life, but it could be better, you know. 
It could be better. It's like getting another job, getting another degree. It could be better. You could become a Christian. No, Jesus isn't a tag onto your life. He is your life. The fullness is that I know Jesus. Why did you come to Jesus? Well, I came to Jesus so I could get this or I could get that. No. Jesus is it. It's, it's, you came to him and you entered into the kingdom and you have the hope of eternal life. End of story. Whatever happens between that moment and when you actually end up in the presence of the Lord. It's just, I mean, we already have a description of the things that can happen. It's good for us to remember this, that we are sojourners. We are pilgrims that are passing through this world. Right? We're just, this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. You know, you got an American passport, but it's really no big deal. The passport you need to be concerned about is the one that says citizen of heaven. And we're just passing through. How many of you have done international travel? Okay, how about this one? How many of you have done travel and it felt like it was just terrible? Okay, everybody's hand goes up. Okay. So, I mean, everybody's been caught in a, you know, two, three-hour traffic jam or something. And, you know, it's like this travel and you're, you're trying to get to a place and you're trying to do this. And, and you go through this. Why do we put ourselves through these types of things? Because it's just for a little while. We're just, we're just so journeying. We're just passing through. You know, I'll cram everything into this, you know, small little, you know, suitcase. And I'll cram myself into this small little metal tube. And I'll sit by, you know, people I don't know and be closer to them than I ever thought I would want to be closer to strangers. And I'll go over there and I'll sleep in uncomfortable places. And I'll eat food that's dangerous and, you know, and all the rest. Why? Well, it's not forever, right? Just, we're just doing this. We need to remember that we're pilgrims. And when we lose sight of that pilgrim mentality, then we begin to look for things like, well, wait a minute. Why, why am I you know, having to go through this having less income because I'm a Christian? Well, why, why do I have to have you know, less of my needs being met? I'm hungry. I'm, I want more. And, and why do I have to have difficulty and hardship in my life and and, it's, and you say, I don't know if it's all worth it because you're, you're now losing sight that you're just, you're just traveling through. You're just passing through. Don't allow these momentary light afflictions to get your eyes off of the Lord because what we have coming is not even worthy to be compared with what we have lost or what we are suffering in this present hour. That's what Paul says. It's not even worthy to be compared. How can you compare you know, impoverishment or lack of, in, you know, income that you may have in this life because you follow Jesus versus being a, a child of the kingdom. Blessed, as, you know, the way that uh, Matthew puts this, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. You get it all. In the end, you get it all. You are a child of, you are a son, you are a daughter of the king. And not only that, but as we read in scripture, we are heirs. But what kind of heirs? Does anybody know what kind of heirs this says? We are what kind of heirs? Joint heirs. With who? With Jesus. That we will sit on a throne even as he has sat on a throne. So what are we really 
bothered about. And so Jesus is able to say, ah, I know it's hard. I know you're going you're to go through hunger. You're going to lack finances. You're going to have tears that are going to come to you. You're going to be rejected. But oh, how happy you are because the kingdom is yours and because I'm going to feed you and because we're going to sit and we're going to laugh together in the kingdom. Would you really give that up? Would you really give that up? So keep the perspective right, and when things begin to get rough because you are following Jesus, don't feel like somehow it's not working for you. It's actually doing exactly what Jesus said it would have. What is strange is is not that we would be reviled or that we would lack some things. What's strange is so we have been so blessed in this country. That's what's strange. That's what's strange. So... These beatitudes, I think, taking on more of a, 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 a literal look at the physical state or status of the followers of Jesus. Whereas in Matthew, it's more looking at that spiritual side of things. So interesting. Interesting to compare these sets of beatitudes and to ponder. But remember, we are passing through. We are pilgrims. It's not forever. Look at verses 22 and 23, and we see that not only are there physical hardships of following the Lord, but hatred is going to come uh, to those who follow the Lord. Blessed are you. Oh, how happy, how fortunate. You're privileged when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil. Your name is like, oh, don't hang out with them. They are such a, they're a Jesus freak. For the Son of Man's sake, because you're a follower of mine. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, he's not just like, just don't have just this quiet disposition of, oh, this is a good thing. He's asking you to physically get involved in the rejoicing aspect. They hate me, they reject me because I follow Jesus. And he says, it's a good time to stand up and do a little dance. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. They did it to Isaiah. They did it to Jeremiah. They did it to Ezekiel. They did it to David. You're like them. How do you like being named among those people that suffered? You're like Peter. You're like Paul. I mean, that's not a bad company to be in. You, you get, you're going through the very things that the greatest men and women that have ever lived their life, that we rejoice in their lives and we learn from their lives, you enter into that same kind of experience. So when they exclude you and revile you, here's the interesting thing. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. I want to be liked by them. I want to be liked by that peer group. I want my friends to like me. All right, there's nothing wrong with that until you're willing to make a compromise in your faith to find that acceptance to get that next promotion for your old high school buddies to still want to hang out with you because you're afraid of being excluded and so you just kind of stifle the Christian faith and you press it down. Don't do that. Jesus said this is going to happen and you should rejoice over this. This is not a time to go and to hang your head low. Well, they don't want anything to do with me. They don't want to spend any more time with me. Okay, Jesus says don't go hang your head down. Do a little dance. Get pretty excited because you are blessed. 
Hatred, exclusion, and reviling is something that is common to those who follow Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So again, the strange thing is not that we are reviled. The strange thing is that we might find acceptance, and we pretty much have. I think things are changing. I think the climate is changing. But anyways, if you want accolades and you want acceptance from this world, then Christianity is not for you. It's not for you. It is for you. But if if you're like, I've got to have that, then you can't have the faith. Because those that are disciples are those that are like, no, I want Jesus. I'm going to follow him. And I'm going to live for him. And if me being named as a follower and disciple of the Son of Man causes people to reject me and I, and, and, and I can't live with that, then, then you're not prepared to be a follower of Christ. And you're measuring things by what you're going to lose now rather than by the things that you're going to gain. As we move on and leave these Beatitudes... We get further instruction on the conduct of, of Jesus' disciples, a little more specific. And so we begin there at verses 27 and 28. And he talks about not just our status, as we talked about previously, but now our character, the way we're going to walk things out. He says that we should love our enemies. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. So there's a little lesson on how to love your enemies. I don't even know how to love your enemies. Well, here you go. You've got a couple of sentences on, on what to do with this. But um, he says, but I say to you. Now, if you compare Matthew 5, verses 38 and verse 44, what we find is, Jesus, in that that location, says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. You've been taught this, but let me set the record straight. Let me tell you what Scripture really means, rather than the interpretation you have heard of what Scripture means. And so one of the first things he wants to address and correct is this idea of enemies. He says, let me set the record straight. The religious leaders of the day had misinterpreted the law to say that it was obligatory to hate your enemies. You had to do that. And this is what they had come to. In verse 38 of Matthew, it says, You have heard it said, and then he goes on and discusses about not retaliating against your enemies. In verse 44, he picks up the second misinterpretation and commands that you should love your enemies. So they had come to this misconception that, that really, if you were spiritual and righteous, you had to hate your enemies. The Pharisees had two groups of people in particular whom they believed you should not extend love to. Number one, foreigners and Gentiles. If you weren't an Israelite, you're not in my target zone for loving I don't have to do that. The second group was if you're a sinner, a prostitute, or a tax collector. Who had Jesus been hanging out with? Who had Jesus been ministering to? 
And so this was their view. It was like, hey, yeah, these people don't like them, don't want them. And this had put them in conflict with the Pharisees already because they believed these people should be excluded from love. And so Jesus comes to correct understanding. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Jesus understood the law and that the intention of the command to love thy neighbor was much broader than they thought. They had a really narrow view of who neighbor was. But Jesus is going to teach, and we'll get this later on in Luke, of who your neighbor really is. And your neighbor is who? Well, your neighbor is a foreigner, a good Samaritan. It's a Samaritan man. And, and the way that Jesus teaches the lesson of loving your neighbor, who is a foreigner, was to turn it around and say, look how the Samaritan loved the Israelite. When the religious leader and the scribe and the leaders of the country, they wouldn't even love their fellow Israelite because they didn't view him as a neighbor. They had whatever reasons going through their mind for why I don't have to love this guy lying on the road that's been, you know, marauded by robbers and left to die. But a Samaritan man understood the spirit of the law and actually helped and loved the Israelite. Who's your neighbor? It's really interesting how Jesus does this. It would have, he was rebuking them with the love of a foreigner for them. You see that? And they had it in their idea, I don't have to love these people. So who's your neighbor? Who's in need? Who are you by that's in need? That's your neighbor. Whoever you come in contact with, the person that you might think is your natural enemy, that is the person that you need to, to love. So love your enemies. You, you think you have these enemies? I'm telling you to love them. You've been taught to not love them, but I'm telling you, it's your job to love them. An enemy is a person where there is antagonism and um, contention between the two. An enemy can certainly be one that has a plan to do you in and harm you physically. But an enemy, by definition, can also be someone you just have an antagonistic relationship with. Now, all of a sudden... This begins to have a little more application, right? It's like, well, I don't really hate people. I don't really have enemies. Okay, is there a person that just really irritates you? You don't have to raise your hand. They might be sitting next to you. But, I, but we all know it's true. We all know that we're irritated by somebody, that there's an antagonism, that there's kind of some, it just there's friction that goes on. And so... That might be a parent, it might be a spouse, it might be a child, it might be a work uh, a co-worker, it might be a member in the body of Christ, it might be all of them. But we are told how to treat them, and our standards are not what they had been said, well, just ignore them and, and, and step over them and get around them. You don't have to stop and help them because that's your enemy. I mean, that's probably a sinner. I mean, look, they're lying there almost dead. Who does that? Probably a bad person. So therefore, I don't have to stop and help them. And this is that crazy way of thinking. And Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemy. Love your enemy. What does it mean to love? 
You know my favorite definition, choosing the highest good for another. Choosing the highest good for another. That's what love is. Love is not just this, you know, emotional, um, you know, upswell in your, your mind, in your heart. It's like, oh, I feel this love and this warmth and this deep care and concern. No, love is choosing the highest good for another person. It's a commandment to do that. He's, we're commanded to choose the best for our enemies as well as those that are of the household of faith. So in verse 27, um, well, first of all, we're told to, to, to love. But verse 27, we're also told that, um, actually, verse 28 is, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm messed up here. Verse 27, we are to bless with our actions. So don't look for revenge. Don't look to settle the score. Um, don't look to walk away from the situation to get on down the road to Jericho. You know, we, maybe we want revenge. Maybe we want to run. Jesus is calling us to the higher standard, and he says, with your actions, bless that person. He's then going to talk in verse 20 about blessing with our, our mouth, our speech. This is what Solomon said, Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, let him starve. You will no longer have an enemy. No, that's not what he says. He says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. That's choosing the highest good, isn't it? And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Well, wait a minute here. If he's my enemy and I make him strong and refreshed or I make her strong and refreshed, they may go back into action. So the Bible teaches us to face that adversarial relationship and show kindness and goodness. Meet the need that they might have. And so we say, yeah, but if I do that, I might be putting myself at risk. You take that up with the Lord. I mean, I mean, the Lord knows this, right? Is he naive to the fact that if you do good to an enemy, you don't crush him when you have the chance? Is he naive to the fact that that might come back later on and give that person more opportunity? He's not naive to that. He knows that. He lived that. He died that. So what he's asking us and calling us to is a life that is willing to lay itself down. You want to follow me? Great. Are you ready to die? Because you got to take up your cross. you got to deny yourself. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. So love your enemies. You, do you see how all this ties together? The Lord is, well, I've got to have boundaries. I've got to protect myself. Okay, yeah, you're right. There might be a place to put up some healthy boundaries. But if healthy boundaries and, a, and, and protecting yourself puts you in a place that you never have to interact with that person again or show them kindness or any kind of love, um, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. You need to seek the Lord. I don't ever read in the Bible... You know, make sure you have proper boundaries. But I do find the Lord saying, love your enemies. So if you're going to err, you can figure out where that should be. I think you know. Can you think of an individual that God has allowed to be in your life that you've been withholding goodness and kindness and love, a meal or a cup of cold water from because of the hardship they've put you through? 
love your enemy. And then in verse 28, it's not just blessed with our actions, it's also that we should bless with our speech, right? So as we keep looking, look at verse 28. It says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. So bless with your speech. Our mouth is usually the first thing that reveals our heart. Find out what comes out. Jesus is calling us to speak kind things to our enemies and to do good things to them. Now this seems like a strange thing to do, but then the Lord knows what is best for us and he knows what's best for them. Well, how could that possibly be a good thing for me to bless them? Oh, well, it'll keep you from bitterness and gossip. That's good. Engage your mouth in a positive way. Because if you got an enemy and you're not engaging it in a positive way, you're probably going to engage it in a negative way. And then you're going to sin. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Don't have it in this sermon But in Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers, right? We are to be peacemakers. Proverbs 25, 15 says, By long forbearance a ruler is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Really? If I had to pick one member of my body to break a bone, the last one I would choose would be my tongue. (laughs) Right? That's, I mean, if you had to figure out a way to break a bone, it's like, let me kick it. Let me punch it. Let me, you know, you know, you know come down with my knee on it. But my tongue? A gentle tongue breaks a bone. So you see, when the Lord says you've got enemies, bless them, maybe he realizes this. It doesn't mean they're always going to turn around and, and show kindness. But you know what may happen? That bone might break. You might afflict them with that kindness. And we, Jason prayed about it. We sang about it. What is it that leads us to repentance? It's his kindness. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. So pretty challenging stuff. Pretty challenging stuff for us. Um, we're to pray for our enemies. You say, yeah, I've got a good imprecatory prayer. I would like to pray for my enemies. Lord, I pray that you would, you would you know, give them lockjaw and nausea. Um, and that, you know, no, that's not the kind of prayer we're to, to be praying for here. Not an imprecatory prayer of, you know, with the blast of your nostril, would you just wipe them off the planet, Lord? You know, no. The context would say that we're praying for them to experience the goodness and the kindness of the Lord, that they would come to faith and they would be saved. Not, not, vindictive prayers are not pleasing to the Lord. And that really, praying for those that are caught in sin to come to the knowledge of the grace of God. And the sin may very well be against you. Is there any example of that in Scripture? Is there any example in Scripture of people praying for those who have just done wrong to them? I can think of two. I'm sure there's more. But two that stand out. Jesus prayed for his enemies as he is upon the cross. And the first Christian martyr, what's his name? Stephen. He prayed, right? He prayed for those that were about to stone him. So, pray for our enemies.
Verses 20, verse 29, I said, we're taught to not retaliate. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your, your shirt as well. If he takes your coat, give him your shirt. Don't retaliate. And, and see, this is what they thought. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right? This is, again, in Matthew. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, the, the way they interpreted it, it, this was a civil principle. This was a principle, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. This was a principle that judges people that sat at the gates of communities and towns and villages as they sought to mete out discipline and justice. It, they were to use this principle, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You killed one of my you know, uh, sheep in the, in, the, in the flock, therefore, punishment, 10 of yours will be killed. No, it's not fair. Eye for an eye. You're going to lose one. You're going to pay him back one. And then usually there, the law would also include maybe like a 20% you know, penalty fee on top of it, things like that. But as in, it shouldn't be, when you correct, it shouldn't be an overcorrection. But what the Pharisees and the scribes had come to, I mean, is if, if somebody inadvertently did something against you, you were commanded an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There was no place for mercy. It's like, you know, I'm, yeah, I, know you didn't, I know you didn't mean to set my field on fire. It's an accident. But you know what? You know what the word says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to set your field on fire now too. No, you, you can show mercy. Your interpersonal relationships, you know, well, you said a mean thing to me, so now I've got to say a mean thing back to you. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. No. This was for judges that when they were going to mete out judgment, that they made certain that the, the punishment was in accordance with the crime. And so this is the idea that they had to retaliate. And he's like, you, you don't have to retaliate. You don't have to do this. Now, some have taken this passage and it says, To him who strikes you on the cheek, uh, on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes your, away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. And so they're saying, Listen, the Christian should never be engaged in self defense. Well, the, the law of Moses allows for self defense, it allows for it. And I just want to read this quote to you um, from Albert Barnes on this question. So Christ did not intend to teach that we are to see our families murdered or be murdered ourselves rather than to make resistance. The law of nature and all laws of human and divine justify self-defense when life is in danger. It cannot surely be the intention to teach that a father should sit by coolly and see his family butchered by savages and not be allowed to defend them. Neither natural nor revealed religion ever did or ever can inculcate this doctrine. So th this is not what Jesus is being taught. Again, you can think of the context we just talked about and how they were, didn't believe there was any place for showing mercy and that they always had to retaliate. He's saying, you don't have to live like that. Don't be like that. That does not then mean that there should be no self-defense. I know we could probably talk about that a lot longer, but I'll leave it right there for now. What else? Verse 30, be generous. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Give freely. Don't be greedy. 
Don't be a grabber of your stuff. You know, the basic idea is, you know, is that we should be generous. We should be those that give. We shouldn't be tight-fisted, you know, protecting everything that we have. Verse 31, we have the golden rule. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. And so, yeah. You know, certainly, you know, what would Jesus do is a a good question. But another good question is, what do you want people to do to you? How do you you want to be treated? Do you want to be treated the way you're being treated? Yeah, but they deserve it. And when you deserve it, do you want to be treated that way? Or do you want mercy and grace? Because I think you probably want mercy and grace. And so this is how we should be living and walking and acting. So before we commit an act or withhold something from a person, we should ask ourselves, is this the way I want to be treated if I am in a similar circumstance? Verses 32 through 35, and we're going to wrap it up here. We're told to love like our Father. Let's read these together. It says, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, What credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Yeah, that's a hard one. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful, and evil. Our love is not to just be like a common worldly love. I'll lend to you. Interest rates right now are, but I'm going to jack it up a little bit more. Not as high as I could go because I kind of like you. No, this is not not how we're we're to be conducting ourselves. Um, We're to be those that love like our Father. He's generous. He's kind. He does good. The goal for the follower of Christ is higher than anything that's out there, right? It's a supernatural kind of love. It's a love that we do not possess on our own. It's a love that breaks open when we come and experience the love of Christ in our own life. And we're touched by that grace. And now as we're touched by that grace, it changes everything. How could I possibly become, you know, unforgiving and lacking in mercy and not being gracious and not being generous and not being kind with my words when the Lord has been so good to me? And so we, we have this overflow. We become not like the world, but we become like our Father. And the Lord gives us the Spirit to walk this out. To live it out. I just can't do that. Well, you're right. You can't and I can't. But the Spirit of God working and moving in our lives can produce that. Well, I've tried to forgive people and I just can't. I just can't forgive this person. You don't know what they did. You're right. I don't know. But I'm not even saying you got to tell me. But the person who wrote this, he knows. He knew what would happen before you were even born. He knew what would happen in your life, and he still says that we should love in a way that is really, really different than the world. 
And yet we can't do that on our own, but he gives us the supply. You know, love is like water. The love of God is like water. Love, um, I'm water always seeks to find the lowest place. Do you have a basement that fills with water? Then you know what you know. That's a principle that's true. Water likes to find the lowest place, and that's the way the love of God is. The love of God is always looking for that lowest place. It's trying to find that place, the person that's down in the gutter, the person who's just there are sinners. Jesus said, you know, as we studied last week, I didn't come to call the righteous. I didn't come for those that got it all together. I came for the broken and for the sick. I came for those that are in the lowest possible place. And I want my love to flow into their life. And so he came and he did that, right? I mean, he did that. But now where does that love flow through today? flows through you. It flows through me. And it flows through the church of Jesus Christ. So the love of Christ should be flowing through us and looking to find that person who's in the lowest place. Well, who's that? Those who persecute you. Those that revile you. Those who speak evil against you. Those who take your cloak and are after your shirt too. Those who borrow from you and they don't give back. Love is to be finding that spot. We're to be radically different in our love. And so he gives a long list of, of places where love is expected and nobody is surprised. He says, well, I want you to surprise this world with your love. I want you to surprise them. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to love like your father. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Be like him. Be kind to the evil. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll wrap it up with this cross-reference. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 through chapter 5, verse 2. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Here it is. Here's the point. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and has given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. The way we love ought to look like Jesus and ought to rise to the Father as a sweet-smelling aroma. Yeah, but I got it right. Before who? Before the people around you who don't understand the word of God, they can all agree and they can all say, yeah, you did the right thing. Yeah, you, you, know, you had every right to just lay them flat and to rip them apart and revile for revile. You had every... Who's telling you that that's all right? It's not the word of God. It's not Jesus. The standard is that we love. And it's to be radically different. It's to be... The same way God loved us through Christ and has forgiven us. We, when our, our love, our forgiveness, our patience is to model that. And when we do that, the Lord takes a deep breath in and he's like, mm, that is a sacrifice I enjoy.
But the, the reviling for reviling, you know, the smart aleck remark, going back to the person who said something, the retaliation, making certain that, you know, you know, at work this person did this to me and now here it is, well, look at this. I have an opportunity to, to see that they're going to be in serious trouble and there's going to be consequences because they failed to do that. Now, I could go back and I could tell them right now that they missed that. Or I could just be silent because they've been mean to me. They made my life miserable. They lied about me. They made, they made me miss that promotion. What do you do? What do you do? What, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus tell you to do? What would you want that person to do for you? The answers are all pretty obvious here, aren't they? And so we are called to show love, generosity, and mercy the way God has shown it towards us. We need to look no further than the cross and see a perfect picture of these qualities that we've just talked about. At Calvary, we see Jesus loving his enemies. At Calvary, Jesus is being reviled, and yet he is praying that they would come to know the forgiveness and grace of God. At Calvary, we were not condemned, but we were what? Justified. Jesus held nothing back at the cross. And so that becomes our model of how to live. And yes, I agree with you. Who is sufficient for these things? Not a single one of us outside of the Spirit of God living inside of us and empowering us and us coming to this first conclusion. The Word of God is true and right, and I am a disciple and a follower of Jesus, and I am going to ask him for that grace and the mercy to live like that. Can you, can you even get to the place tonight where you would ask for God to help you be like this? Or do you still have all your reasons? For why you shouldn't ever have to do that. Well, I encourage you to go take it up with your Savior and the author of this passage. Yeah, I mean, these are hard things. I mean, who in here doesn't know what it's like to have people harm and offend you? You know, yeah, I've, I, I, I've had, there's one person that has been a, was more of an enemy to me than anybody I know in my life. And I don't even know how many letters he wrote to pastors all over the country about me. To me, the worst one was to Pastor Chuck before he passed away and having to talk to him and people getting FedEx packages. I mean, all over. And, and I've had to think, you know, I, I don't ever study this passage without thinking about that individual. I promise you. Got phone calls from people I didn't even know. Yeah. God's word is true for me, but it's also true for you. It's true for you. Father, we come to you and we, we just simply humble ourselves. We bow our knee and first of all, we say thank you that you loved us, that you forgave us, that when we reviled you, you didn't revile us. When the soldiers and the Pharisees and the scribes were hurling insults on our behalf, on the day you hung on the cross, you still chose the highest good for us and you died there and you rose from the dead.
So Lord, give us the grace to walk this out.